The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of W or management. of many more that we hope to bring to you from different locations around the world as we get into the latest of Middle East news and analysis. Today's broadcast may be the most important that I have ever delivered in our year and a half history, dealing with the most pressing issue, arguably the greatest change in the relationship between Iran and the United States. After 41 years of tumult, starting with the revolution, the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which took place in 1979, and the first direct action against the United States, with the hostage taking of 52 Americans and the overrun of the embassy there in 1979. 444 days later, the release of those hostages when Ronald Reagan was on the eve of becoming president of the United States. A no less dramatic action now, 41 years later at the beginning of 2020, with the decision by President Donald J. Trump to carry out the execution and political decapitation of the most dangerous or the formerly most dangerous arch enemy of the United States from the Iranian regime, General Qasem Soleimani, the former head of the Al-Quds Division of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of the Iranian regime. The significance of this assassination and the story that has followed in the five days since has seen Iran lobby, lob dozens of missiles, Fatah-110 medium surface-to-surface missiles at two American air bases in Erbil and in Al-Assad, both within Iraq. We've also seen the potential downing of a civilian airliner, not by the United States, which was the case in 1988 during the last major direct conflagration between Iran and the U.S. and what was called Operation Praying Mantis, but by a trigger-happy air defense unit on the outskirts of Tehran, the Iranians shooting down a Ukrainian airliner. And now the bellicosity of both the Ayatollah of Iran and that of President Trump with a war of words, whether it be in the Twitter sphere or over the airwaves at the funeral of Qasem Soleimani or with President Trump speaking from the White House, now gearing up the gears of war as they move forward towards a potential detente, which may be expressed this morning when President Trump addresses the nation at 11 a.m. on the results of that missile strike against two American targets. Fortunately, no American soldiers were killed There was no casualties reported on the Iraqi side. And one must note that the launching of ballistic missiles from Iran into Iraq is equivalent to a declaration of war against Iraq, not something that the country itself should have to deal with because it wasn't just the U.S. who was targeted. It was Iraqis serving on those bases who were targeted as well. And now we find ourselves on the precipice of a decision that the president must make. Will he accept the lack of casualties? That this, in essence, the Iranians claim to be, is a retaliatory strike under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, allowing for what they say is self-defense, responding, they say, proportionately to the killing of Soleimani, or 
Will the president say that even if there is a ballistic missile strike that caused no damage to the United States, in order to increase our country's deterrence, the U.S. must strike back and not allow a missile strike like this, even though it did not cause any physical casualties, to go unanswered. To get more into these issues today, we will be joined by the Director of Research at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Dr. Patrick Clausen, an expert on Iran, and also by another guest, a longtime war journalist, analyst, and expert on the situation in the country as well, Mr. Ken Timmerman. But before we get into that, let's walk through what exactly has pro- what has what has exactly expired uh, over the last few days since the decision by President Trump to take out Soleimani. Last Thursday, during a press briefing, U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper, this was on January 2nd, said there were indications that Iran or forces at backs may be planning additional attacks on the United States. The first attack was on December 27th, when an American contractor was killed by an Iranian proxy group, part of the Hashtal Arabiya or the, uh, the popular Hashd al-Shaviha, which is the Iraqi Shia militias, which are backed by the Iranians. And the defense secretary going on air saying that because there may be the uh, game changers that he was referencing in that press briefing, the United States may have to take preemptive action. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, was also at that press briefing, where he claimed that there was a sustained campaign by Qataib Hezbollah, the Iraqi Shia group that is under the umbrella of the Popular Mobilization Units, the PMU, against U.S. personnel since at least October, and that a missile attack in northern Iraq, like the one that was on an American base and in the Green Zone on December 27th, was not designed to scare American personnel, it was designed to kill. The chief of staff at that event said that it was highly unlikely anyone would overrun the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and if they did, they would run into a buzzsaw. His comments came only 24 hours after members of the Shia militias backed by Iran, Iran's main proxies in Iraq, had went through the outer ring surrounding the United States Embassy, which was in response to the United States having a few days before that bombing five different bases two in Syria and three in Iraq, that were occupied by the Shia militia responsible for the death of that American contractor on December 27th. This quickly escalated, and this warning by the defense secretary was quite prescient, seeing as Qasem Soleimani was taken out by a Reaper drone piloted remotely from a U.S. air base in Las Vegas and targeting not just him on his way from Baghdad airport to a meeting that was ostensibly supposed to be with Iraq's prime minister, but also containing the deputy leader of the popular mobilization and the head of the Qataib Hezbollah militia, the individual responsible for the death of that American. The response from Congress was swift, with every Republican lawmaker supporting the operation, the exception being that of Rand Paul, tweeting, President Trump viscerally understands that the toppling of Saddam Hussein made Iran stronger. Soleimani, like Hussein, was an evil man who ordered the killing of Americans. Yet the question remains whether his death will lead to more instability in the Middle East or less. Also among Democrats, noting the highly partisan divide between both in the House and the Senate, Republican and Democrat, 
The main division was between those acknowledging Soleimani's malfeasance before condemning the operation. This excellent analysis by Michael Levinson, the Washington, D.C. resident fellow of the Middle East Forum, brought us this comment. Sanders tweeted, Trump's dangerous escalation brings us closer to another disastrous war in the Middle East that could cost countless lives and trillions more dollars. However, Joe Biden, at the same time, a day after the strike, noted that our world has been set on edge by an erratic, unstable, and dangerously incompetent commander-in-chief, referencing the president. The stakes could not be higher. The rhetoric brought out by other members of the presidential campaign going into 2020 also noted their displeasure with the United States. Far few, like Senator, Senator Gene Shaheen, Senator Doug Jones from Alabama, and Senator Gary Peters. Mr. Levinson notes that, in the end, it is shocking that so many Democratic lawmakers would vociferously condemn the targeted killing of someone responsible for so much carnage before receiving a briefing on the imminent attack that Secretary of State Pompeo said forced the administration's hand. The U.S. Special Representative for Iran, Brian Cook, Hook, told our Arabia that the attack was going to kill hundreds of Americans. We have yet to see where we are with this. But moving forward, we will now go to a break. Next, Director of Research for the Washington Institute, Mr. Patrick Clausen. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I'm Greg Roman, the director of the Middle East Forum. And our program is produced in concert with Gary Gamble, our resident editor, and Marilyn Stern, our producer. Our next guest on this program is someone that I have an immense amount of respect for, not just having known him prior to becoming a member of the Middle East Forum, but also having the opportunity on a few occasions to visit him in his offices in Washington, D.C., and of course, to see him from afar. Patrick Clausen is the Morningstar Senior Fellow and Director of Research at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy where he directs the Viterbi program on Iran and U.S. policy. He's widely consulted as an analyst and media commentator, having authored more than 150 articles about the Middle East. But the reason we've brought him on today is because of his policy expertise regarding Iran. Patrick, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for the high praise. 
And thank you for not just being someone that we turn to for expertise and joining us this morning, but also for all the work that you've done uh, in concert with Daniel Pipes, our founder, and also for the many articles and reviews you've written with Middle East Quarterly. Tell us the significance of Qasem Soleimani's assassination in a few words. What does it mean for the future of U.S.-Iran relations? It was a much bolder step that the U.S. government has been prepared to take in the in the past. And uh, what it signaled is that the United States was going to add a component of kinetic action, military force, uh, to its campaign of maximum pressure against Iran. And therefore, Iranian leaders will always have to factor into their future decisions uh, the possibility that the United States may react with military force in a way which previously they were not concerned about. You've been a pretty strong proponent of covert operations against Iran where you said seven years ago that Iranian submarines periodically go underwater, someday one of them might not come up. Was President Trump's uh, decision to overtly take out such an important Iranian figure in a kinetic action correct? And if so, why? Well, it was a, a bold gamble. And uh, a lot of additional work will be needed in order to make that gamble pay off. There's a potential of a high payoff, um, the most famous case of 30 years ago was when the United States inadvertently uh, shot down an Iranian uh, Airbus uh, on the same day that the U.S. was providing massive intelligence to the Iraqi forces for a successful assault. Uh, Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, decided the United States was joining on the Iraqi side in the Iraq-Iran war and that Iran would have to accept uh, ceasefire. So in that case, the kinetic action inadvertent as it was, uh, had a big payoff, namely the end of a bloody war in which hundreds of thousands of people had died. Um, the problem is that uh, Iran may also decide that instead of responding in that way, that it would respond with uh, a sharp attack back, not like last night's attack, which was designed to harass and not to inflict serious damage, but instead a, a, a plan, probably thought out carefully, uh, that would really inflict damage on U.S. and its interests, the way that the Iranian attack on Saudi oil facilities really inflicted serious damage on Saudi interests. So it's a big gamble, and uh, it, we'll have to see how it pays out. Now, you made a point in an article two days ago that escaped many of us. I made the video of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Iranians mourning Soleimani's passing, that outside of Iran, there has been almost zero popular reaction as you write, to his death in most Muslim countries, and very, very little even in those that have large Shia minorities. If the Iranians are counting on strong popular support within their country to back any reactionary attacks they may have against the United States, why is it that there's almost no reaction outside of Iran? Because uh, Soleimani was indeed an Iranian national figure, and it's that na unifying national figure uh, which has uh, meant that many people in Iran who don't like the Islamic Republic uh, are mourning Soleimani's passing. There is this sense in Iran that there was a real danger to the country uh, from uh, ISIS back in uh, five years ago. You may recall that there were ISIS attacks on the Iranian parliament building in the center of Tehran and on Khomeini's tomb. And there was this sense that, my gosh, the, all of that uh, confusion and um, chaos, death that was occurring in uh, 
northern Iraq at the time and in Syria could come to Iran, and that Soleimani and the Quds Force is what saved Iran from that horrible disaster. So that made him popular among many people in Iran, who are popular is the wrong word, respected uh, reluctantly among many people in Iran who can't stand the regime. But that same national Iranian element of Soleimani um, means that people in other countries aren't going to march behind his banner because he's an Iranian figure. He's not a revolutionary figure or an Islamic figure. Right. But with the assassination of Soleimani, there was also the effect that it had on Iraqi Shia militias. Uh, there was an article in today's Wall Street Journal uh, by Mr. Galston, which asks several questions. One, will the Iraqi government rescind authorization for U.S. troop presence? Two, will Shia militias resurge against U.S. troops to avenge Mohandas, the head of the deputy head of the popular mobilization units? And three, will the threat of an all-out war deter Iran from massive retaliation against the U.S. forces and allies? So my question to you is this. We've seen the Iranian response, and we're going to hear what the U.S. has to say about that when President Trump addresses the nation some 42 minutes from now. What's the Iraqi response going to be? Well, in the uh, so far, the, we've seen a very muted Iraqi response, and uh, that does not reflect well on the Iraqi government, because after all, this was uh, a violation of Iraqi sovereignty, uh, these missiles landing on, on these Iraqi bases, because those are not U.S. bases, those are Iraqi bases, and most of the people on those bases are Iraqis, most of the people being uh, threatened by the Iranian missiles raining down were Iraqis. Uh, so what we have seen is uh, yet another example of spinelessness on the part of many Iraqi authorities who are scared because the Iranian-backed militias are quite prepared to kill not only them but their family members uh, if, if people take the Iraqi nationalist stance, which so many protesters out in the streets in Iraq have been demanding that people take. Uh, so uh, I'm not expecting profiles and courage out of Iraqi politicians um, precisely because of uh, the threat from those militias. And in fact, it was quite surprising to me that if the, when the Iraqi parliament met uh, to vote on whether or not to tell U.S. forces they should leave, uh, that probably a majority of parliamentary members uh, actually boycotted the session. Um, the parliament claimed it had a quorum, but that's almost certainly false. Uh, and uh, that showed quite a bit of courage on the part of the people who were not there mainly Kurdish and Sunni MPs that, as you mentioned, boycotted the event. But this points to a larger schism in Iraqi politics. Most of the Shia militias, the PMU, which is backed by the Iranian government, by the Quds Force, find themselves in concert with their political allies in the Iraqi parliament. But there seems to be a reluctance on behalf of those Sunni and Kurdish members, and also even some uh, Iranian uh, formerly Iranian-backed members, like for instance, Muqtad al-Sadr won the Iraqi elections on an anti-American and anti-Iranian interference platform. And we've seen the protests over the last two months. Where does Iraq domestically go from now in two veins? I'd like you to address Iran's um, influence operations now that Soleimani is, is, is done with. You know, will Hassan Ghani, his deputy, be as effective in Iraq? And two, if the Shia militias do decide to carry out some sort of retaliation, what will the U.S. do? Well, 
the real voice of the Iraqi people, as we've what we've seen of the hundreds of thousands of protesters who've been out there in large numbers, the same people who uh, completely trashed and burned the Iranian uh, consulates and the cities of Karbala and Basra. Uh, what we see in the Iraqi parliament is, is the result of effective intimidation by the uh, Iranian-backed militias. Uh, one of those militias uh, sent a text message to every member of parliament, uh, uh, strongly implying that if, if the parliament member didn't vote the way they want them to, uh, that the uh, family members of that uh, parliament member should not expect to live long. Uh, and so the actions of the Iranian parliament, uh, the Iraqi parliament, excuse me, are, are more designed for show than in a reflection of the viewpoints of the people who are casting those votes. In fact, we've had Iraqi parliament members frantically calling my staff and saying, listen, doesn't Washington understand that that vote was meant to be a, a show that we had to do? Uh, we don't actually mean it. Good grief. Don't do what we asked you to do. That's not our intention. <laughs> So that's in terms of the parliament itself, but I'd like to pivot back to Iran for a second. Uh, do you think that when Trump gives his speech, I mean, I'm going to ask you to put yourself into the shoes of Richard Goldberg, the uh, current now 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 exiting uh, director for anti-Iranian WMD proliferation at the National Security Council, or even to put yourself at the National Security Advisor. What are you advising President Trump to say? At his 11 a.m. speech, what do you think is the best possible outcome for both the United States and Iran? Well, I would start out the speech uh, with, with uh, condolences to the Iranian people for the deaths of the, uh, in the airplane accident and in the earthquake that hit Iran today. In other words, I want to show the world, and not just Iranians, uh, that this is a campaign against the Islamic Republic government and not against the people of Iran, especially after... Uh, Trump's comments about cultural sites being targeted. Uh, the regime and, is and doing quite an effective job, and so are the anti-Trump the anti crowd around the world, in saying that uh, Trump's real objective is to go after Iran as a nation. So I would start out with that. Uh, and I would also start out with saying that um, um, if Iran's retaliation is uh, such as we saw yesterday, which is more harassment rather than real damage, then uh, uh, we can be patient and tolerate it. It's just if Iran actually tries to inflict serious damage that that's going to be a, a different matter. But, you know, when you start lobbing missiles up in the middle of a runway, I'll give you a hint. There's not many people found in the middle of a runway. And <clears throat> so... Um, that is an indication that what you're doing is uh, thumping your chest and proclaiming loudly that you're doing much when, in fact, you aren't doing very much. And we have now the direct Iranian response to the United States action last Friday. What do you foresee the proxies doing, if anything? Oh, I suspect that there's going to be a lot more activity from uh, the proxies uh, and, for that matter, a lot more activity from Iran down the road. Uh, what we see now is just Iran checking the box of the immediate retaliation now comes to serious long-term planning. And uh, the biggest objective is to get the U.S. out of Iraq. And so I suspect that uh, Iran will pull out all the stops to mobilize its proxies in Iraq to try to force the U.S. military, if not U.S. Dipl diplomats, uh, to, to leave Iraq. Uh, that's very high on Iran's agenda, and they will uh, prepare to sacrifice a lot in order to accomplish that objective. Right, but we see the Iranians now walking a tightrope. You know, one U.S. contractor ends up being the catalyst for the United States taking out 
the uh, arch nemesis of all the directors of proxy forces since 1998, uh, Qasem Soleimani. So if there's further U.S. And, and by the way, and don't forget taking out Mohandas. Mr. Mohandas was arguably the, the most important person in Iraq, uh, more powerful than the president or the prime minister. And uh, um, he, frankly, doesn't have many obvious replacement. Uh, there's nobody else who's got his degree of uh, respect and, and has exercised his degree of control over these militias. Right. I mean, people forget that you had these proxy forces, especially Mr. Mohandas, was allegedly responsible for the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait in the 90s. Correct. He, uh, he's under a death sentence from the Kuwaiti court for his role exactly. in the bombing. Exactly. I mean, this was a bad guy. We can't forget and, about him. and American embassies. Right. So, uh, the Kobar Tower bombings, the, uh, Leb the Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah bomb. I mean, all of a sudden, for decades, we have uh, proxy forces saying, we weren't responsible for the bombing of U.S. targets. And all of a sudden, so many dies. You know, I have Hezbollah saying in Almanar TV, Guess what? We did do it in 83. We did do it in 84. You know, all the all the people are trying to now thump their chest saying we were the ones who were going after the United States. Why why the sudden change in in now taking the blame for the actions that they actually had done after decades of saying we weren't responsible for that? In large part because the United States and its uh, friends around the world uh, such as Israel uh, um, have been effective in persuading uh, many um, doubters, like my, many in Europe, uh, that look, uh, uh, he, Hezbollah was responsible for these activities, and so therefore Hezbollah was getting the blame for these activities. And if they figure that they're getting the blame for these activities, then it's time to take credit for them. It was useful to hide their role only when that allowed them to avoid getting uh, blame and uh, being put on all kinds of uh, lists of bad guys. But once um, you saw uh, governments across the Arab world, for instance, designating Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, uh, and um, similarly across Europe, uh, then there was less reason for Hezbollah to hide uh, what it had done in the past. And now the last question I, I guess I would ask you is, you're in D.C. You understand the policymaking circles and how they're talking about this. If you have a message for Republicans, Democrats, especially those in Congress and those running for president about what to avoid in using uh, this incident as an opportunity to score partisan points, what would you advise to these candidates and those in Congress right now in terms of giving a fair minded view to what's happening rather than making it inherently political? Respectfully disagree with others if when you have a disagreement with them and um, recognize that those who um, disagree with the president uh, may make some decent points. In other words, uh, don't turn up the partisan rhetoric too much, please, uh, and uh, be respectful of those on the other side of the debate. These are tough decisions. Uh, with real consequences, and um, we're going to be um, more effective if we have a, a united position. I don't think anybody in the United States is particularly a fan of custom sum money, and we shouldn't imply that they are. But there are going to be real differences about how to go after him, and, and we should uh, respect that. Do, do you think the president made the right call? It was a big gamble. Um, I think if he... Uh, if he takes the additional measures necessary to make it work, it could pay off big time. Uh, but uh, um, it, it was the start of a big campaign. 
And uh, whether or not it works, we'll have to see. But that will depend at least as much on the follow-up actions as, as uh, the initial strike. We've got about not a minute left. Sorry. Not acting against the nominee would have been also very dangerous. And many of the same people who criticized Mr. Trump for not acting after the, the Iranian attacks on the Saudi uh, oil facilities are now criticizing Mr. Trump for acting uh, when Qasem Soleimani was planning additional terrorist acts. So not acting would have been about as dangerous as acting. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Washington Institute and how we can read your work? So we try very hard to have a respectful bipartisan tone, but because our main uh, contribution to the is the expertise we bring about uh, the Middle East uh, rather than our expertise about uh, uh, U.S. politics. So we try very hard to reflect, uh, to bring information about the Middle East uh, to the U.S. policy community. Patrick Clausen, Director of Research for the Washington Student Ears Policy. Thank you for joining Middle East Forum Radio this morning. Thank you. Thank you. These messages, Ken Timmerman. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. What a fascinating conversation we just had with Patrick Clausen, Director of Research at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And I am highly looking forward to learn a little bit more about the situation within Iran from our next guest, Mr. Ken Timmerman, a consultant with expertise in terrorist-related asset collection, especially in Iran, Iraq, and Middle East terrorist groups. He's the president of the Foundation for Democracy in Iran at Iran.org, formed in 1995, and was the Republican nominee in Maryland's 8th Congressional District in 2012. Mr. Timmerman, uh, as we try to get you back on the program, I think that you can hear us, but uh, we still have to, uh, to get you back on. Otherwise, there's been some work that we've seen him uh, do, which is uh, fascinating in terms of some statements that he's been able to make. Mr. Timmerman recently said that if there is such a thing as an irreplaceable man in the Iranian regime, Qasem Soleimani, he's the guy, even more important to the regime than the supreme leader. We're going to ask him about that. We're also going to ask him, what does this mean going forward for Iran? 
meaning that the regime's irreplaceable man is gone. In an interview last night, Mr. Timmerman also spoke about the Iranian missile attack, calling it extraordinary, and that it was carried out openly by Iran, not by surrogates. Should we expect more of the same? So, Mr. Timmerman, you're with us? I am indeed. Good morning. All right. We were just going over some of the uh, prescient uh, analysis that you've been putting forth for the past few years, and especially for the past few days. I'll repeat it again to get right back into it. You said recently that there is such a thing as an irreplaceable man in the Iranian regime, referring to Qasem Soleimani, more important to the regime than the supreme leader. Please explain. Uh, Qasem Soleimani had his fingers in every terrorist plot. Uh, He was the spider at the center of the web. Uh, He was the one who conducted all of Iran's overseas operations, terror operations, military operations. He personally, physically went to Syria to Lebanon, to Iraq, to Yemen, to all of these different places to oversee his operations. He put in place his trusted lieutenants to carry out spectacular uh, terrorist operations, such as the 9-11 attacks against the United States and the uh, attack in Benghazi in 2012. Uh, These have been documented, by the way. It's not very well known in the United States, the Iranian involvement in those two particular terrorist attacks, but it has been very well documented. Just go back back to that for a second. What did you say about 9-11 and Soleimani? (laughs) So Qasem Soleimani has also been the one to delegate his top lieutenant to carry out Uh, The 9-11 plot, he was a liaison with al-Qaeda to carry out the 9-11 plot. This began, uh, as I wrote in my 2005 book, Countdown to Crisis, uh, with uh, the then number two, Zawahri, traveling to Iran in January of 2001. And then in May of 2001, the son of bin Laden, Saad bin Laden, traveling to Iran to cement the relationship and cement their cooperation. Uh, We established, and I say we, lawyers for the victims of 9-11, the families of victims of 9-11, established in the Southern District of New York court uh, in a decision handed down in 2011 uh, that uh, the Iranians delegated the relationship to al-Qaeda for this plot to Imad Mugniyeh. Mugniyeh was a creature of Qasem Soleimani. He was a Lebanese terrorist that Israel finally uh, dispatched um, in February of 2008 in Damascus. And Mugniyeh was the point man for that liaison. I have to to just push back for a second that I will acknowledge that Qasem Soleimani was a figure involved with liaising with al-Qaeda, both before and after 9-11. But the 9-11 commission report, which has no mention of Soleimani whatsoever, said that investigators found no evidence that Iran was involved with or had prior knowledge of the 9-11 attacks. Moreover, while they may have knowingly aided al-Qaeda in carrying out attacks in Afghanistan, and even aided and abetted the transfer of al-Qaeda members both before and after 9-11 through Iran, including providing housing for some 10 years for al-Qaeda's uh, membership that we're actively trying to get away from the United States. I got to push back on that and say, I don't think that they were responsible for 9-11. Can we well, agree to uh, disagree? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, the, the, I, I first got interested uh, in that connection 
when I uh, learned uh, of um, a defector from Iranian intelligence named uh, Hamid Reza Zakhari, who had given an interview in 2003 uh, to an Arabic uh, language newspaper in London, uh, and he had been personally present at these two meetings I just mentioned to you. Uh, and later I went and talked to the individual on the 9-11 commission, uh, first one of the commissioners, um, a former secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, and he steered me to the staff director who at the very uh, last week before they handed the report in July of 2004 uh, was called down to the NSA to uh, go through a, the last box in the last stack of documents that they had found with 75 highly classified NSA intercepts showing uh, exactly what the U.S. government knew at that point about Hezbollah and Iran's involvement in the 9-11 attacks. And it was quite a lot. They crunched that down to two pages, two, uh, pages 240 and 241 in the report. And uh, the, the conclusion was if, as you say, uh, they could not prove that Iran was involved. But uh, how else explain this pattern of travel where a senior Hezbollah operative, who they were instructed not to name, and the staff individual told me that was Imad Mugdiye. How explain Mugdiye's repeated travels ferrying these eight to 10 of the muscle hijackers and others to Iran? Right. Uh, in the the I don't want to put a switch on this just because it's, it's, uh, we have a lot more to focus on today, but I, I will give you the credit. The report said, and I quote, eight to 10 of the 14 Saudi muscle operatives traveled into or out of Iran between October 2000 and February 2001, and that several of the 9-11 hijackers took advantage of the Iranian practice of not stamping Saudi passports, a policy Iran instituted to improve relations with al-Qaeda. So, like I said, aiding and abetting, yeah, direct involvement in planning, maybe they were aware, but fingerprints still not as evident as maybe needed. Definitely open to further um, investigation, but but I just well, wanna... I would suggest that you read. I would suggest that you read the information because uh, I have put it out there in writing. You can you know take your at your leisure. It's in Countdown to Crisis. There's several chapters about it. It's also in the court hearings. You can go to Iran911case.com and read some of the affidavits. Iran has a long track record of cooperation with Sunni terrorist groups. It's something that's not very well not known. And for many years, the CIA- well, You're 100% right. If, if you look at, if you look at uh, from your website here, and I'm quoting a document that's up there. In 2016, the US Treasury Department identified and sanctioned three senior Al-Qaeda operatives residing in Iran and noted that Iran has knowingly permitted these AQ members, including several of the 9-11 hijackers, to transit its territory on their way to Afghanistan for training and operational planning. You are on the mark on this. It's just that if we look at the relationship from 9-11 to 15 years later, they're already sanctioning Al-Qaeda members that are still in Iran and in Tehran today. We must acknowledge there's a relationship there. But the extent and the depth of it is a conversation that I'd like to have another time, specifically because, as you said recently, that Soleimani is irreplaceable. I, I, I want to challenge this for a second because I'd like to look at two specific examples of um, Iranian proxy groups that had received uh, significant support from the Al-Quds Brigade, uh, not Brigade, but the Al-Quds Division of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and also that of other uh, Iranian proxy training forces like the MOIS, the Ministry of Intelligence Services. When the uh, Israeli government decided to assassinate 
the head of Hezbollah in the early 90s, there was this idea that by taking out the leader, you would get someone who would be more inclined to be reformed and may not be as violent or as nefarious as the previous head of Hezbollah. In return, we got Hassan Nasrallah. <laughs> the, uh, the same instance happened when there was efforts to take out leaders of terror organizations like Al-Qaeda, and we ended up with people who were much more vicious and much more dangerous. Is Soleimani's replacement as Samgani more or less dangerous than him? Uh, yeah, much less dangerous. He does not have the web of connections. He does not have the char charisma. Uh, he is not looked up to by his subordinates the way that Soleimani was. Soleimani was greeted as a hero with, when he would move around uh, amongst his people. He was greeted as the devil by, by people in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Iran itself uh, who had aspirations of freedom. But he was command a legion of uh, devoted followers and people willing to carry out his commands. And that was a personal relationship. I think it was, it, it, it was, there was something deeply personal about it. Let me put it that way. And maybe shifting strategy within Iran. You said last night in an interview that Iran's missile attack in Iraq was extraordinary and that it was carried out openly by Iran, not by surrogates, as is its standard practice. Should we expect more of the same of direct kinetic conflict between Iran and the U.S., or, or maybe a, a combination of both proxy and direct action? Well, again, they normally act through proxies. They normally act in ways that are, uh, can be plausibly denied, right? In this case, they openly said and, and declared that they were behind this missile attack, and then the missiles completely failed to do any damage. So you've got to wonder what was their reasoning behind this attack. If they had killed Americans in, uh, with this missile attack, I have no doubt that President Trump would have responded uh, uh, with overwhelming force, and they would have paid a huge price for that. Now, did they misunderstand the president to that extent that they were unaware that they would pay a price for the attack? I, I think there, the, 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 uh, you know, it's an open question. It's an open question. We're, we heard from the Ayatollah uh, Khamenei today that he considered this a slap against America. Well, that's just pathetic and, and, and transparent, and everybody knows it. Um, so I just have an open it, – it really is an open question for me. Was this done by a group within the Revolutionary Guards that was openly hoping to provoke America to a dramatic military escalation of the conflict? That's, that's really what my question is. So, so William Galston writes this morning in the Wall Street Journal an article titled, Will the U.S. and Iran Blunder into War? This last uh, question that he puts, where he says, the risk is that Iran, confident that Mr. Trump won't wage war during an election year, will miscalculate by staging a spectacular attack that takes many American lives. This would force Mr. Trump to choose between a conflict he doesn't want and looking weak, which he cannot stand. What do you think the president's going to say in 15 minutes when he addresses America from the White House on the, uh, I, I even called a faux missile launch attempt to show strength, but to strike a few desert patches outside of American air bases in Iraq? Uh, well, 
Well, Greg, this is always a fool's errand to <laughs> predict what President Trump is going to say ahead of time. <laughs> but what, what I can imagine him saying uh, and, and what he could be saying, which would be very useful, I think, is that the United States has drawn a red line. If you shed American blood, we will respond dramatically with overwhelming force and you will pay a tremendously high price. Don't even think about it. Uh, and uh, and I think that's you can see that with his reaction to the drone strike um, w- when the Iranians excuse me took down a U.S. drone in the springtime and he was given the option of a counterstrike uh, and he said he called it off a half an hour before the planes were to launch after asking the generals how many people were going to die and they said well about 150 sir he said that's disproportionate it was an unmanned drone so I think the president has shown if you take American life we will absolutely go after you. Uh, the rest of it, eh, you know, if you want to play around in your sandbox, we've got other means, non-kinetic <laughs> means, to do you damage. You spend a lot of time working with Persian diaspora organizations. What's the reaction coming out of the diaspora outside of Iran? Uh, overwhelmingly in favor of what the president has done. I mean, overwhelmingly. And also inside Iran, you see people are posting videos inside Iran, some of them where they veil their face or cover half of their face, but others of them, women uh, who are speaking right into the camera and saying, Mr. Trump, we love you. Uh, you Thank you for what you have done. Qasem Soleimani was considered uh, by freedom-loving Iranians, not just a terrorist, but a a man who uh, played a key role in the repressive apparatus who was all in when Iran would send the Basij onto the rooftops to use fire on crowds with snipers, uh, fire on peaceful protesters. Uh, there was an event near Abbas in protest about three or four weeks ago where they rounded up about 120 people who had tried to escape uh, demonstrations in the center of this smaller town. They rounded them up out in the marshland and just gunned them down with machine guns. All right. And this was caught on video. It was absolutely stunning and horrific. It reminded you of some of the worst things that the, uh, you know, you would hear from World War II in the in the forests of Poland. Uh, It reminds me of Bobby Yar. Right. I mean, so so he was he was an evil character and Iranians are thanking us for it. And Iranians in this country are, I think, overwhelmingly supporting the president as a result. Now, let's talk about an organization in Washington that claims to represent of, an Amer- of a majority of American Iranians, the National Iranian American Council, NIAC. Tomorrow, they'll be hosting a call with Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders, ostensibly in opposition to American uh, action against Iran. Uh, I find this surprising. Uh, my colleague, Sam Westrop, notes that if this is true, they're basically speaking on a conference call with an organization that has clear ties to the Iranian regime. Uh, what do you make of this? I mean, NIAC has put a petition together. They've been organizing anti-war protests. They've been calling for a return to the uh, the nuclear deal. What, what's their, their deal here? What, why are they doing this? Okay, first, first of all, NIAC does not represent the Iranian-American community. They are hated I agree the 100%. Iranian. They're doing it under the American moniker, the, the semblance of claiming to, which they obviously right. don't. Uh, and 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 but you should not be surprised that people like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Chris Van Hollen, for that matter, who I ran against in 2012 in Maryland uh, in in Congress, should be supporting NIAC because they 
share their goals and they share their views that America is at fault and Iran is just you know, an innocent victim of American imperialism. This is a view in the American left. It's profoundly mistaken, I believe. And, uh, but in the case of NIAC, uh, people should actually be a little bit more cautious because the former head of NIAC, uh, a guy named Trita Parsi, uh, was openly taking part on the Iranian side in the negotiations in Lausanne that led up to the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, he was there with the Iranian negotiators on their side when they were meeting with Americans. I mean, it's absolutely stunning to see something like that. The guy ought to be in jail. I mean, he's now organizing this Quincy Initiative on American Statecraft, I think it's called, against the fake news and foreign influence. It's being funded by the Koch brothers. That's uh, pretty troubling. <laughs> considering who they support politically or some individuals who otherwise would support Ash against Iran. But while we're on the subject of American politicians, there was a letter that was sent out on December 12th, prior to the start of many of these uh, protests they were making mention of, where the response from uh, the IRGC and, and the regime's supporters was nothing less than a massacre, as you point out, from some uh, 14, 15 members of Congress uh, Raul Grijalva, Ilhan Omar, Andre Carson, Pramila Jayapal, Mark Pokan, Ayanna Pressery, Rashida Tlaib, a lot of the, uh, the squad members, right, that, that are called here. And it was calling for 100% of the sanctions, which was in a letter to the Treasury Department, 100% of the, the sanctions being lifted against Iran. The, the last sentence in, in this, par- in this uh, letter said, the administration's sanctions campaign is in direct contradiction with the stated overarching goal of supporting the human rights of the Iranian people and their aspirations for democracy and freedom. It should be made a priority to remedy the adverse consequences of these sanctions to ensure that Iranians have the basic human right of access to quality, affordable medicine. So they're talking about pharmaceuticals. Fine. Whatever. What is wrong with these members of Congress not understanding that the sanctions actually galvanize democratic opposition to the regime rather than suppressing it? <laughs> right. Well, you know, there used to be a time in American politics where uh, we would say our differences stopped at the nation's shore. And those times are long gone. They're long over. We no longer have a united view towards foreign policy, towards American national security interests, or towards America's role in the world. You have people who come out of a Marxist uh, a radical left-wing uh, background who now have made their way into Congress, who've made their way into major newspapers, who believe that America is the source of all evil in the world. And therefore, America must be defeated. America must be fundamentally transformed, to use a phrase. Uh, and uh, we must support the victims of this American imperialism, such as this wonderful, wonderful democratic free regime in Iran that is Oh, it's religious. We should be supporting it. They're about Islam. They're conservative. Well, I'd like to say in response, they're as conservative as Joseph Stalin was conservative. Uh, it's really an insult to conservatism to call somebody like uh, Ayatollah uh, Khamenei a conservative. Right? He, he's, a, he's a thug. Suleimani uh, was a thug. Uh, they're not conservative. They're totalitarians. So it, we have come to a state in American politics where these radical leftists are now taken seriously by the media. And I think that's a stain on our body politic as well as a stain on the media. Shame on them. Now, we have a fellow that works at the Middle East Forum. His name is A.J. Kashetta, And he speaks about the uh, nature 
of the Iranian protests, an article he wrote for The Hill on December 2nd, not being about the price of uh, gasoline, but with protesters chanting on the streets, no to Gaza, no to Lebanon, leave Syria and think of us, and even death to Palestine, as he writes, indicating that something much larger than the price of gas drove their outrage. We now see the dean of uh, Iranian proxy activity, Qasem Soleimani, in the grave. And whoever follows up with him, you made the point, won't be another Soleimani. And, and I don't know about that. We have to see what, in my opinion, Assam Ghani is going to do. He's been his deputy for the, he was his deputy until he died for the last 23 years. And perhaps he had some sort of other genius in Pakistan and Afghanistan where he was responsible for it. But we'll you know, leave that for a debate a year from now to see where the IRGC and its all coup division is. But I got to ask you about this. These protests taking place six weeks ago didn't have millions of people on the streets, but they were in over 100 cities in Iran. Where does internal Iranian politics go now that they have lost their chief proxy operator, but at the same time, there is massive outrage, at least witnessed by those people on the streets, against the United States? Where does this put the two camps? One pushing for democracy, the other pushing for the deification of Soleimani. I think what you've seen that you mentioned outrage against the United States, I would call it full outrage. This, these are rent the mobs, rent the crowds. The regime always does this when they want to impress the cameras. They give government employees, and there are a lot of them in Iran, the day off, and then they bust them into major cities. They pay for the buses uh, and uh, stage them in front of the cameras. Uh, I, probably, by best estimates, there's somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population that are ardent supporters of the regime. Uh, they are the ones who are chanting death to America. They are the ones who are getting benefits from the regime, if you wish. But the overwhelming majority of people inside the country uh, are on the fence, kind of going along, keeping their heads down. And then you have an active uh, portion of 10 to 20% who actually take to the streets. Uh, what is going to happen now the regime has lost the aura of, invincib of, of invincibility. Uh, they are no longer invulnerable. P people were afraid or had been afraid up until the death of Soleimani that nothing they could do could shake the regime. Now they see, aha, if the United States can take out Soleimani, perhaps we can take out the regime. I think you're going to see a toughening of these demonstrations. I think you're going to see a broadening of them. Um, and, and it depends. They are looking to the United States for some form of help. The thing that I've heard most frequently that they would like to see the State Department uh, turn on the Internet when the regime turns it off because the regime likes to kill in darkness. And I understand that the State Department does actually have the technical capabilities these days to do such a thing. So I would like to see that be part of U.S. policy to just give some material assistance to, a, to this broad base of a pro-freedom pro movement inside Iran. Yeah, let's blow out the cyber windows so they can't put the blackout curtains there anymore. Uh, I've been having this debate with one of my colleagues about what the technical capabilities are of Iran and of the United States cyber uh, different commands and divisions. And uh, I'm, I'm with you. I think they do have the capability of turning the internet back on. Uh, Ken, tell us about your organization, Free Iran. Tell us about what you're going to be doing over the next few days and weeks, and, and how can we follow your work? 
Well, first go to uh, my personal website, KenTimmerman.com, where you have all of my articles on Qasem Soleimani uh, in the New York Post and Front Page Mag and other places recently. Uh, the Foundation for Democracy in Iran uh, has a legacy website, Iran.org. We started out in the early days of the Internet when, it was, when we were able to get such an address, 1995, in fact. Um, wow. And in the early days, again, we, we helped pioneer uh, Internet-based or electronic-based human rights reporting. Uh, this was during the 1999 student protest, and we got out photos of the uh, crackdown by the regime at that point. By now, there have so many people doing this. It's wonderful to see there's been an explosion of this. And, and that's why turning on or keeping on the Internet during protests is so important because you have these, these human rights reporters with their cell phones out there documenting the evil of the regime. And it's so important to get that out to the world. So you can go to Iran.org or to KenTimmerman.com and read more about all of the things we've been discussing. Ken Timmerman, director of Free Iran and noted author and analyst. Thank you for joining Middle East Forum Radio this morning. So much, Greg. My pleasure. And this is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM with Middle East Forum Radio, Gary Gamble, our general editor, and Marilyn Stern, our producer, with another wonderful morning of our first program in 2020. For more, check out meforum.org or go to at meforum on Twitter. Have a great week.